Hi, um, it's me, Alex. Uh, your your old friend Alex, who maybe you've never met before, but that's fine. Um, if we've never met before, you, I guess you know my name. My name's Alex. Some people call me Alec, even people who, um, I tell that my name is Alex, they call me Alec, but that, that's fine. Um, uh, and, and if you want to know a fun fact, um, our bathroom is being renovated at the moment, so... Uh, this morning I showered uh, in the sink, um, and you can you can project all of your wildest fantasies uh, into that situation. I'm not even going to tell you how I did it, but go let your imagination um, run wild. Um, nice to meet you. I hope I hope we become close friends. Um, so uh, this is my podcast. Um, you probably know that already because you're listening. Um, what's it about? I don't really know. Uh, a lot of things, conversations. It's not about conversations. I guess it is. The, f- the, the, uh, format is often conversational. Um, I talk about philosophy and stuff. Um, if you, if you're enjoying the pod, whoa, sometimes I come too close to the mic. Anyway, um, if you're enjoying the podcast, uh, you should, you should become a patron. You really should. And, um, that'd be really helpful for me because it will mean that I can keep going with the podcast and I can keep going regularly and I can spend more time researching and I can do more interviews and stuff. And, um, yeah, any kind of support will be appreciated. You can do so via Patreon. Um, I'll put a link in the bio or whatever for Patreon, but you know what? Maybe just go on Google now and type in, uh, Alex listens, Patreon, and then become a patron or whatever. I'm never going to have ads on this podcast ever, ever, because I would never, um, I would never do that either to myself or to you. Um, even this American life talk about bullshit fucking, I don't know. What do they say? Um, rocket mortgage, quicken loans. Yeah. What the fuck? Ira Glass. I love you, man. But what are you talking about? Um, yeah. Uh, so um, I have a website. If you want to know more about me, you can go on my website, www.alex.co. Um, this introduction feels really chaotic, but, uh, I, maybe it's, maybe it's not. Um, but anyway, today I spoke with, well, not today, but I guess today that you're listening, um, for all intents and purposes, I spoke with Ed Fornialis and Omsk Social Club, um, Ed Fornialis sounds like a real person, uh, and probably is a real person. Um, Omsk Social Club doesn't sound like a real person, but believe it or not, uh, they, they, um, they manifested in the form of a person or one of the, I guess it's a group. Omsk Social Club is an art collective. Um, and one of the men, one of the main contributors of the art collective, um, who wanted to be referred to as Omsk, Omsk Social Club, um, uh, came on the int- on the podcast, um, and so did Ed. I already said that Ed came on, and they're both artists, and their main thing is role play, um, live action role play, LARP, um, and we spoke a lot about that and the psychology of kind of play and embodying different roles and experimenting with what is possible in terms of your performative horizons and exploring 
um, different ways of interacting with the world and exploring why um, we, we also explored why uh, they make things and they're both really they're both really cool people um, and we sat on the floor in a room and did the interview and I just I had just I had met Ed before but I just met Omsk and they offered me a glass of wine and I poured it on my leg um, and and I guess that's a pretty unfortunate thing to happen when you've just met someone, but that's okay. Uh, if you like the podcast, uh, you should tell me what you like about it. Um, if you don't like it, uh, you should tell me what you don't like about it. You can tell me in a number of ways. One of them is via social media. Um, I hate Facebook, but uh, I have Instagram. I don't have Twitter. Maybe I should get a Twitter. Probably not. You can also email me. That'd be really funny. Actually, no. You know what? I have some really great email exchanges with people. So please email me. My email address is contact at alex.co. And don't you fucking dare call me Alec, okay? Um, yeah. Anyway, uh, this interview is really exciting and it's really eye-opening uh, and gives you a real insight into the world of uh, creative performative art. Um, and maybe you're thinking, is it possible for art not to be uh, creative or performative? And um, uh, maybe listen to find out. Um, anyway, I love you. Bye. Hi. 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 How is everyone? Good. Yeah. Good. I would say good. And who am I? Who am I here with? You're here with uh, myself, Who's Ed, Ed Fornielis. Um, I'm an artist uh, working primarily in role play. And, uh, and I'll be representing Omsk Social Club, uh, which is a, uh immersive action group that works within the art sphere across Europe. Hmm. Okay. Um, and... And why, why do you two make things? That is a very broad question. Well, okay, let me try and narrow it down. Um, no, or, or is that okay? No, maybe, I think it's okay. okay. I was actually talking to another artist friend recently about this. And um, on one level, I think it's about processing. Uh, and the, like, the artist often doesn't admit it to themselves, but they are often um, using it to confront like both themselves and how they see the world um, for better or worse. And then what, what do you think about this? Yeah, I mean, I think that all art practices are somewhat of a double-sworded journey, one of the individual themselves and also a societal practice of trying to understand the matter that we find ourselves in. I think that art practices are generally pretty rooted in the contemporary notion of being. And also to, within the kind of interest of not wanting to be alone in making these assumptions on life. And like wanting to do that in a kind of collective sphere, but that doesn't necessarily mean collective in the broad sense of community. I think it's a very kind of isolated collective reaction. 
finding similarities or yeah i think that also you and i work and omsk work in a very similar way in that um it is often collaborative and it is often overlapping and, and led and involves many people in conversation and it is a negotiation often and i think that both of us perhaps maybe um shared the belief that you know you create fictions that then become realities so there's always this social political edge or at least pushing towards that in which perhaps ideas could be tested mm. felt out and then maybe later seeded in in spaces that aren't just art that you know we can mm. move into different dimensions and disciplines mm. one thing that both of you have said is that um each of your artistic processes have something to do with your own concept of being or whatever it means to be you and then someone else's your collaborators or society or something and then i don't know are you saying that the final product is kind of like your understanding of how those two things but i think maybe it's important to clarify that i think both of us make the work that we do because we actually have no true concept of being okay the status of being is so much in flux for us and that's the the main impetus of creating the works that we do yeah a realization that identity is plastic and that um and that it being in flux it can change and and to try to have an understanding that reality um doesn't have to be as it is in this moment mm. and are, are you both okay with that with like with with a concept of being being something that you can't ever truly access or it's always something that's changing shape is that like i think once you admit that that's your status it feels a lot more comfortable right i mean the opposite is terrifying like trying to <laughs> hold on to something be like this is me i am this in you know it has this uh, biological imperative to it which i i find both politically and personally terrifying yeah okay um because yeah i guess it also to put borders on your sense of being i think is actually what's grossly negligent about the society and world order that we live in today right i used it because like in in world politics there's a kind of what like fatalism or something they're saying like this is how well, yeah. things need to be well i mean also like if you think about all the psychopathic tendencies of human nature um fanaticism nationalism um they all come from a very well i would say illogical sense of stability of being right, right. yeah often like a statement is being made because somebody sees themselves as a certain thing that is speaking for a certain group of people and i think it prevents other vectors being drawn between people that you know perhaps otherwise can be okay and do you think um i also just want to say that we're not um in any way arguing for universality just to clarify <laughs> just to clarify that we're not binary in our oppositional as in saying that those are the only two ways yeah yeah okay and i don't think that was coming through at all okay. um what i was going to <laughs> <But> no. <laughs> 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 um what okay so i i really like i really like that 
I, I like I like to think of my world and my understanding of the world as something that is like fluid and malleable and whatever forever changing but one thing that I've really struggled to do and one thing that I've really struggled to conceptualize is how like how do you have a conversation with someone who thinks the world needs to be one particular way like for the people who are radicals people who are nationalistic um how people who want to create one particular image of the world how you how do you share because they believe in the opposite of what you believe in you believe in a fluid ever-changing world and they they want one world with a kind of final final form how do you kind of yeah well i think that's actually part of a practice is that and maybe just to clarify that we both work in immersive role-playing environments and I would say that, speaking for us both, that our practice is about performing alternatives and a sort of sense of self-divination comes out of that. And by enacting these spaces, it's a new modus of um, conducting politics and the hope that by these people actually living through this experience that actually that will change the discourse far more than a verbal conversation can because of course you you have a bodily a somatic a psychological a collective experience of playing that actually i think in previous conversations that we've had it seems like for us this is um, a new trajectory of reaching out to people of that status. Yeah, and I think um, like sidestepping the binary conversation is really important. Like uh, avoiding a position where people end up having to sort of take a position or, or, or get used to this kind of like habitual dynamic. And I think that play is a really useful space where all those things can begin to dissolve. Hmm. And is like how before we move on to the topic of play, of role play, um, how did both of you come to realize the importance of play and the importance of kind of imagining different worlds and things? How was it? Yeah. What, how, what was both of your trajectories like getting towards that point? I mean, I can say with um, Social Club, like the trajectory was finding oneself in radical left-wing autonomous movements and understanding that outreach is extremely severed to any community beyond one's own mm. and trying to find a chasm of interaction that actually funnily enough the art world seemed to offer um to be able to set up these spaces that um anybody could join um with the invitation of auditing what is real and yeah i suppose for me it was a, a personal journey like uh, I, uh, 
the time I got into it, I was friends with um, a lot of actors. And um, I kind of noticed that acting is wasted on actors. Oh. <laughs> and like, uh, you know, um, I was living one at the time and, and she'd be going through these like intense roles and her identity would be shifting and changing constantly depending on which project she was in and like learning things about not just herself but the uh the con like both the political and social context of the characters that were being played and i think um seeing that and seeing what it was giving them um that was something that i really took on board and began just experimenting with in my own practice um and began doing these like initial role play gestures which sort of has cascaded since then, and and then learning from different practices who have been, you know, people have been doing this for many years. There are there are so many different disciplines, um, from you know crisis relief to LARP, um, from like political courses, uh, who are all attempting in some ways to understand a different perspective and integrate that knowledge into their own understanding of the world. Um, and yeah, and, and it's uh, an incredibly rich and powerful thing to engage in. Mm. And do you think it's, do you think LARP and, and kind of these, these interactive forms of art, do you think they are something that um, will become mainstream forms of kind of? I think they are, I think especially, well, I mean, there are different communities and they're, they're growing okay. in different spaces. So I guess my, the implication of what I said was that they're not mainstream but i guess like outside of outside of the larp community what like the funny thing is that i think actually um role-playing is is completely mainstream really yeah okay but it's not acknowledged that that's what we're doing and i and i think that different groups have different um, conventions and have different relationships to improvisation and as you said maybe they're not calling it that maybe they're calling it something else I mean if you just look at the construction of the self in um, an online digital world this is a type of role playing Mm. Um, also if you think about the the way in which certain institutions the government the family institution your friendship group they all um you shape yourself to work within that role schematic mm-hmm. and so actually i think that um role playing in itself is something that has been part of our day to day our survival tactics of being part of any community um forever actually and maybe what you know wittgenstein would call it language games is something we learn these these rules and we learn this vocabulary and we 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 know how to exercise them within certain domains and i think that it's something that human beings take to very naturally and i think the only um element that perhaps omsk myself and other practitioners add to is this reflective element where right uh, a moment, well, first of all, you become aware of the rules um, by which you're playing um, within potentially a fictional scenario, but then you can start thinking back to your own naturalized existence. And also then to have this reflective moment whereby you begin to process what has happened to you as a group and you can talk about those experiences and, and begin seeing the borders of, uh, of things that are normal to your everyday and those which are not. Mm. 
Yeah, sorry. I'm, I think I, I totally undersold the kind of um, the frequency or the kind of prevalence of role playing activities. Um, like you're right, I guess we do kind of, you know, we have jobs, we all have particular responsibilities. And I think someone would have a really hard time trying to argue that these are things that are like that come that we're born to be i guess all of them are roles um kind of positions that we assume um and yeah ed that like um that's you're right like there is something very it's a very human move is the move to abide by a set of rules and to look for a set of rules to interact with the world but i guess one thing that i don't think at least still one thing that i don't think is too common is um the kind of role play that isn't consistent with the roles that are normatively prescribed for you and to you so i think a lot of people role play in their jobs or in i don't know like people are silent on public transport or whatever in london no one smiles at each other but like outside of that um yeah apart from like larping and other maybe like video games i guess that's something that's giving people an avenue but i don't know i just i feel like yeah the avatar is an interesting um way i think that um role playing has become disseminated into mainstream culture um i would also say if you go to any dance floor you'll find people becoming mm. um unhinged from their bodily rhythms um similarly if you look back in history and you find any kind of um earthly spiritual realms the shaman for example um constantly goes through um an extreme educational process of playing different roles or allowing different bodies to inhabit their own in in a transitional space um, from the person to the shamanic healer. Um, so I think it's, yeah, it might not seem like we um, exercise these alternatives of othering mm. um, from ourselves, but I, I think actually if you, you begin to not look only at the verbal tense of, embodying another like i mean also like let's be frank um i think having sex with somebody you also embody a completely different somatic energy um that you are probably not in control of but that energy is always dependent on the other person like i mean unless you believe that you have sex exactly the same way every well, i think the word negotiation becomes really uh important like the reality of this room is negotiate between all three of us and it's some it's it's in neither in any one place it's constantly in flux and shift and the common understanding and there is hopefully a common understanding um is is something that is like uh is very hard to define but is it is somehow present um i should also say that as well that like it's not about being totally plastic i don't think that i cannot become you for instance but through um, performing certain contexts and scenarios 
and putting myself through certain things, I might get a better understanding of what it is to be you or somebody else. Mm. Um, yeah. Mm. Um. I think maybe that's also what is the difference between our theory and traditional art practices is this kind of inquisitive nature of like the doors of perception in a sense i think that we're very interested in this moment of practicing this in unpicking day-to-day -day life and and in a sense like kind of second and first order cybernetics of like okay we're living within systems within systems within systems within systems but what happens when we actually choose to um fray the threshold of one system or dissolve another system and like kind of i mean in a sense i think that most artistic practitioners they're in in some way scientists of the real it's a nice open yeah yeah Uh, and they're really interested in conducting experiments on tipping these positions. And I feel that that's sort of the underlying reason why we kind of got all wrapped up in this <laughs> stuff. <Yeah. laughs> and you know, it does become unearthly it does become unearthly <laughs> and it is very uh, rich and we are talking this kind of almost sort of mystical uh, way about it um, but it's also very hard not to talk about it in that way because also we can't say exactly how we experience it but that's not the way that everybody experiences it so I think it would also be misleading to give our own personal dogmatic to say this is this yeah. and, I, and I think and that's also something interesting is like when you organize or participate in one of these a role play for instance uh with like if there are 20 people or if there are 300 people there are 20 different versions or there are 300 different versions depending on how many people are there and um and that version will change the next day and that version will change six months later yeah and that version will change like a year later so that version is also also in flux like which is super fascinating to watch both in yourself and other people mm. um And especially, you know, how the more time goes on, the more things are simplified and conversation is used between the group to form these narratives and anecdotes that make sense of their experiences. Um, yeah. mm. Okay. Um, and do you... I guess, yeah, one, one thing that... I just, I wonder how the kind of... The... Like, for example, Ed, you, one of your projects was Cell. One of your recent projects was Cell. And that was 10 people in an apartment for 72 hours um, adhering to a particular set of role, uh, characteristics each or something. Or each person was given a, a criteria or something like yeah. that. Um, I, I guess the question that I have is like, I like I think that that is a really incredible experience for the people who are able to watch cell and for the people who are able to participate in cell um but how how do you convince people that that is something that they should do like I still I'm still not sure that we have 
answered the question of like how you like how do you talk with the radicalized people who don't want to play oh so in terms of uh so i should specify that cell uh is it creates a hypothetical scenario around an all right group who are on a mission of self-betterment um so that means that they are in training uh, that they adopt the first half of cell is very much around the rule you should always have somebody lower than yourself um, and during that first half there's like a, the exercise there in sort of military style training um, but it was a very uh, hyper aggressive environment and in the second half those rules collapse and it's trying to concentrate on the emergence of an alternative way of being so um, which to me was confronting lots of stuff that had to do with like my experiences in school and other kind of aggressive environments that I grew up around. Um, in terms of how you pull people into both participating and watching, so I recruited people to participate in that from a variety of different places. So some of them were from the art world, some of them uh, were from the LARP world, some of them were from acting, but others were young gamers. Um, mm. who were, I suppose, might be, who either understood the language of the alt-right and had familiarity with those environments, those forums, and those sort of memes, um, or had participated in it in some small way, but um, none of them I would call alt-right, though. Um, but yeah, th that was really interesting. That Those insights that, that they meant, their experiences were me sometimes the most profound because often they would speak about uh, their childhood and how that had affected and how and why they ended up in certain spaces is this afterwards or during afterwards and during i suppose we have these um so the way that it normally works is we have these immer intensive immersive experiences and then at the beginning of each day we had a thing called a debrief which is a check-in just to see how everybody's doing um for them to talk about how they're feeling how it relates to their naturalized death themselves um, and then we had a big debrief at the end so um, the film is broken up into two films basically one is the immersive experience and one is the debrief which is this reflective uh, recapping mm. okay um, but like I, I think I actually haven't done any LARPing or any kind of like role play beyond your everyday but yeah, yeah, beyond, every day. which is like you know one big game a in itself but yeah of experience um, <laughs> but how like I don't know like I guess like I think it's maybe important to point out that um, that I it's an artwork at the end of the day yeah. is what we're doing and um, in a sense Art is available for everybody to view, but it's not for everybody's mm. tastes or um, interests. And I think that that's also something that we hope, of course, that these practices that we're working with will eventually disseminate into others picking them up and also um, mutating them, making them malleable. But at the moment, it's really... It is in itself its own culture, which draws certain people that are interested in reflecting on these topics and positioning themselves in these immersive spaces. But also you 
I I do feel that it's kind of unrealistic to imagine any artwork to touch the global mass. For sure. And also, I mean, role playing itself is so high um, energy intensive that like... Uh, and durationally intensive. Yeah. Um, but, you know, that's saying that, like it is a culture that is proliferating mm-hmm. both in the Nordic LARP community, fantasy LARP community, gaming communities, like, and it is... Uh, at the end of the day also a toolkit that can be you know that you could easily research and take up and and do Empower for yourself you mm. as well mm. yeah i feel like like you i guess just come play yeah yeah no seriously <laughs> but i what i was going to say was i feel like i actually like now that i think about it i i meditate like i, I try to meditate often and i guess like i'm an anxious and depressed person and um like i do a lot of visualization stuff um seeing myself elsewhere or just like letting my mind do its own thing and like trying to engage with that world and that has been like yeah i guess that's been a really liberating and um kind of like both frightening but also uh rewarding experience and i imagine that like yeah in some ways laughing is just that but in yeah going into these experiences i think is actually very much about uh collective meditation like how do you collectively produce a visualization um which is as much as i think like new western esoteric practices will lead you to believe that it's um, a space full of sunlight it's not Um, it's uh, there's a holistic pain that's attached to self-care and I think that that's definitively what's offered in these spaces and going back to original questions like why do we do this stuff I think often it is to do with a confrontation Hmm. Uh, you know, of a part of yourself or part of your history or you know it often is a practice that has to do with processing hmm. okay um and also just i think finding people who want to step outside of what's socially acceptable for 72 hours <laughs> or whatever yeah i think these are really safe spaces for finding extremely strong powerful people who want to push their own imaginations and their fluidity and i think that this this type of practice offers space for those people to get together in a con in a safe space actually yeah i mean that's another thing like so much uh trust yeah. has to be developed between people who participate in uh role play um you have to give so much vulnerability in order to participate yeah i mean for instance in cell the project we're just talking about i was waterboarded but like during the whole time of being waterboarded i was communicating with the people doing it to me and i had total faith that they would stop if i needed them to stop and that they would understand communication to them and vice versa um and it's just such a powerful 
and liberating uh, feeling when you realize that when mm. that trust is shared between a whole group mm. because yeah i guess there isn't like when you just adhere to the normal roles that you're supposed to adhere to there isn't that much room for like actually trusting or needing to trust the people around you so much goes unsaid i mean yeah. the great thing about role play is that like even though for in that instance we're performing a hyper brutalizing environment behind that behind the moments of immersive behavior that kind of facilitate that kind of brutalizing behavior there's this other stuff that has to do with communication camaraderieship um and and trust mm. yeah right um okay and like do, do both of you see this as the i guess the thing that you're going to do with your art in various different forms or like like i think that we both have a long way to go yeah and i'm still learning a lot and i i um i do lots of other stuff and it's so high energy like uh, yeah. well it looks really demanding like yeah so i think it's important for, to do but then also to, to take time out from yeah uh, yeah um okay and huh i mean i think it's also like i mean definitely within like arms because i think that we i mean we produce pieces really every couple of months and what's allowed us to maintain that energy is that we've gathered a community uh, around us since like 2017 of people who come back over and over again to participate in these works and they become so brilliant at this practice that actually it takes a lot of um, weight of Omsk as an art practitioner mm. because it becomes um, a community of action. And I mean, just watching that grow over the years has been like beyond kind of wildest belief of this practice. And that's another thing we should say, I suppose, is that it's it's a it's a it's a it, to on one level anyone can do it and it's and it's fine. But another level, it's a skill, and you can get better at it. And it's a language, and you become more fluent at it. Mm. And so that's really exciting. So like, there are players who I love playing with. I'm like, okay, this is great. We get to play together, and I can that trust has already been built, and I know that I can. I have a certain way of playing, for instance, whatever you might be doing. Um, and I know that certain people will help facilitate that kind of direction I might want to go in. Um, so that's really cool. I mean, a really strong like sense of trust and love is like built up over these practices. Yeah. Mm. Like, even I get though they can go really painful. But yeah, yeah, exactly. But I feel like we're getting very uh, lovey-dovey about love. <laughs> <laughs> But um, but it's kind of true. <laughs> but it's funny because it's like this, like okay, so like when you're in it, it's definitely not lovey dovey. No, definitely. Not. But like before and after, like when you're doing the workshops or like the debrief or like recounting nostalgic experiences of it, it's always seen in this kind of 
fondness. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, I can say that like when we were playing together and we had that fallout, <laughs> that broke my heart. Like that was like one of the most painful things I've ever gone through with a friend. For sure. Was actually during a role playing wow. experience because you because actually you're the thing that you're playing is like the that you're falling out with each other, but you still sincerely care about that person. So it's really unstable. And the character kind of needs it. it yeah, it's, it's very odd. Uh, <laughs> kind of a slightly schizophrenic experience. Well, yeah, because that, that's like, there are like two worlds, like the, the relationship exists in two worlds. For sure. Yeah. I mean, it's just uh, like, for me, I mean, that was a very interesting experience because like, okay, our characters were falling out, but actually the in that situation to feel that pain like the person that you would go to is your friend that you feel safe and secure with. But that person is behind the mask yes. of the character. <laughs> so it's almost like actually you, you end up with four bodies <laughs> that are kind of trying to negotiate or send signs to each other that don't quite get through for a number of hours. So it's a really slow-cooked, raw, emotional position that eventually... I think brought us close together. Yeah, I agree. And I think you have to have trust in the process. Uh, You can't rush it. Yeah, you can't rush it. (laughs) And you can, it's like, um, you know, it's mind, I think role play is mind altering in a sense, um, in a a way that maybe psychedelics are as well. Mm. Um, And I think that you learn about yourself perhaps in a similar way where you, with both, you go through this immersive experience and then you, you make sense of it afterwards mm. and um and it somehow gets incorporated into what it is to be you mm. um yeah i don't know it's interesting as well how there's a thing called bleed which i think maybe is worth talking about as well so um bleed is a concept where you uh, you can bleed um into your character meaning that like who you are normally might affect who you're playing mm. start affecting the way they communicate their body language etc um quite a profound element is bleeding out where the character affects you. Like I remember Penny and I played um, after quite short time after Cell and the character I was playing, Eli, was very present within the role play that we were doing and it affected the way that I walked down a street. It would affect the way people communicated to me. Like it was, it's it's quite full on. And when you start experiencing the world as somebody else might, um, and then there's the thing called mimetic bleed, and that's perhaps when the culture by which you have role played um, begins bleeding out of its own environment. And maybe you want to speak yeah. a bit about that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's definitely where Omsk pits most of its work is within a mimetic bleed potentiality, because a lot of the works that we do are exploring hyper realities that um, we hope to become either a fiction or a reality, um, which is why we're like, I mean, in the sense, I think that's, that's why the practice for us becomes much more about like um, performing a new way of political action um, and doing that over a short period of time within um, test sites and enables people to 
discover how they would perform this political position if there was no mm, no solid status of reality. So the, is this, yeah. Do you mind if I jump in? No, go I just because this is a really important part of it, which I really love, is that it simulates potential ethical positions and dilemmas in a way that, like, you begin to flex a muscle, um, which you might be so exercise later. So, like, I've forgotten his name. Like Stanislavski had this uh, other uh, kind of actor theorist who would work in Russia, um, and because he's Russian, I've totally forgotten his name, but he. Um, he had this thesis that uh, basically that acting was the maybe one of the only sites you might be able to practice free will mm. uh, because you are inputting and making so many decisions about the parameters of that character and then making decisions based on those in a way that you don't normally. And most you just nobody holds you accountable; they hold your act acting body accountable. Yeah, and you're able to be held accountable in in a different way. And I think that. What the really exciting thing about roleplay is maybe that uh, you exercise this muscle and you uh, you began you can begin mapping out your own values and practicing making decisions, so that when maybe that real situation in your in your life come, comes about, it's not just an impulsive gut reaction. It's something that you've played through for yourself. And this really does happen. Like I mean. We're so lucky to be, to have played with hundreds and hundreds of people, and they often write emails, but like sometimes quite late after they've actually participated. Like one recently was um, this man who had he wrote in the mail that he had just found out that his um, girlfriend was pregnant, but not with his baby, but with somebody else's because she'd had an affair. But um, in one of the pieces, he'd actually um, been coerced into a kind of polyamorous ideology, um, which then he said that he pulled on those experiences and those theories, and he can actually live with this child as not being his own but as actually a loving environment on an opportunity to have a child if even if it's not in the um traditional sense of how he anticipated um bringing a baby into into this world and i mean that like he's sort of wrote this beautiful email way more politically than i'm kind of uh, reiterating it but that he wouldn't have gone to that thought bank if he hadn't had that experience of roleplay previously. Yeah, I mean, it's a chance to think differently. And I should also say that we have like certain themes that we are interested in revolving around. And actually, dismantling family structures is definitely one of them. I think um, we, you were talking before about this idea that we roleplay in our, our natural lives and, and families are very much at the core of that. There is something of what it is to be a father, what it is to be a mother, what it is to be a son. Um, brother, sister, um, I find those things hugely interesting. And, and what's interesting about them as well is they're not def definitive. They're not like these these things set in stone. They're, they're constantly mutating and changing. Um, and, yet, in and maybe also this family infrastructure is not so relevant today. For sure. Or at least it's, 
it's um, not in its uh, procreational sense anyway with like overpopulation and so forth yeah but to get that counter narrative through you know I th is I don't know is important to rethink to remodel it or to rethink about like what alternatives are available and they are naturally emergent as you're saying um, hmm. yeah um, yeah I like it's really it's really incredible hearing how LARPing has like has changed the way both of you think about the world like it it really sounds like it has just allowed you to see it as like this yeah I guess just like a, a playground with with like no fixed boundaries and I think that's a really hard place to get to uh, I think it's at least like for most of my life I felt bound by you know, my parents' expectations, whatever, like school, university, there's this like you know, neoliberal narrative that you're supposed to follow. But um Can I ask you a question? Yeah. If you had a community around you that told you you didn't have to think like that, do you think it would be more plausible? Uh I mean, I don't, I don't think like that. No, but if, but, you, but if it was that, like, you actually were around people that told you, well, actually, there is no, nothing as reality. Oh, well, obviously. <laughs> yeah. I, and I think that is like, I think that's coming through really clearly with what both of you are saying. Like, the worlds and the people that you can share experiences with in LARPing seem to be, like, really powerfully undermining and undoing any idea of like a correct and proper way to live or like a fixed and like you know like steady way to live like that thing about the guy who sent you the email that's incredible like but but it's interesting when you talk about like a fixed and proper way to live it's like do we think that we know the meaning of life does does these like institutional formats of authority have the answer to the meaning of life i well, mean they, they pretend they, yeah they, do, they, right? they purport to yeah yeah and i mean that like which is kind of crazy actually it when actually you think is, about it yeah. it's like <laughs> i think it's one of the worst i think yeah like one of the reasons why I entered this depressive, really depressive state in my early 20s and late teens was because I realized that like I was, I was really chained and shackled by just like an ideology that I was like fed and I wasn't able to think. I, I just, I honestly didn't even know that there were other options. Like I was so convinced that like, it really mattered what my final, you know, like results mattered, like power mattered, money mattered, all of these things. But I had so the meaning of life is orchestrated through fear. Yeah, yeah. But evidently it's like, yeah, I, I don't know. Like I, I'm really scared of, I get, now I feel really uncomfortable when I hear people talking about the world as if, there is one way of interacting with it or is or if there's like one answer because there, there are two i think there are two main reasons why it, it makes me feel uncomfortable one because 
I see, I can recognize that way of thinking because like I once, I was once, I once believed that like there was, you know, one, like I had to be someone. There was like this ideal kind of life that I could lead or whatever. And I think from that, the, the fear is that like, like I don't really know what changed in me to allow me to feel differently about things now. Um, what did you let go of it or? Yeah, well, yeah, I guess I just like got, I was pretty, I was pretty young, I guess like 17 to 20, um, to 21. Um, but or maybe gave up. Well, yeah, like it, it could, it could be anything, but like just it's, it's really frightening seeing or knowing that like, I guess, yeah, just like if you don't have opportunities. But that's also funny, sorry, because in a sense, maybe you let go of this, but isn't also this podcast like a way of like getting closer to that for, for you? Like this is your practice, right? Yeah, yeah. Well, it's an outlet like for Like a kind of collective practice of getting closer to with information and knowledge of what how you build this mm. thing around you. I mean, even us talking to you, this is like also informing our architecture of getting closer to this feeling of security in how we view or the impression that's left to us. Well, yeah, but like, yeah, part, part of me is like, part of me wants to be like, yeah, like that, that's what all of this is doing. All of it is informing some kind of like final state but like i know and like it sounds like both of you think that that isn't just isn't true but like i i just i don't really know how to to reconcile these two what do you think is a final state i'm when asking all the yeah, questions no now. no that's good. <laughs> <laughs> that's good but like i'm really interested in this like proposal of like f well finality or fatalism yeah. or like I mean I became really obsessed with the idea of reincarnation interesting point uh, <laughs> I think uh, but when you, it's funny but when not like necessarily traditional Buddhist version and another person I made up well this idea of rebirth is very interesting but in terms of final states it makes me think of capitalism I think sees a final state as having enough money like once you accrue yeah. X amount of wealth, then no longer do you have to sort of struggle for survival. Yeah. That you've you somehow got on fantastic mission of desecration. Yeah, and like <laughs> capitalist nirvana, and like uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and, and I think that that kind of notion is is very prevalent, um, and it's uh, it's definitely erroneous. Um, Ruth Catlow, good friend of ours. Um, quoted me Albert Einstein like two days ago and uh, the quote was do we think the world is a friendly place and I think that's really interesting in relation to final states like is this world aiding or abetting where you get to Mm. yeah <laughs> <laughs> and 
yeah, and like depending on where you are in the world and like what's happening in your life, you will answer that question differently, I think. Uh, yeah, but I think it's also like somehow like a like do you take the optimistic or the pessimistic? Yeah, and do circumstances in your life allow for you to take the optimistic or pessimistic? Mm -hmm. Yeah, and like also do you attach the world um, to a humanistic state or do you see the human as alien to the world? Yeah, that that's like, I don't even know if, at least I have a really hard time answering that question. Like, I think it's impossible. To well, answer. yeah, like recently <laughs> I was like sitting down and someone was like, don't do that like that's bad and i was like well whatever i don't know what i was doing but oh, yeah. what were you doing <laughs> <laughs> I, I, <That's> ominous. <laughs> no, uh, um, but like for the sake of this example just imagine that i wasn't doing something particularly bad just something a little bit bad they're like don't do that and i was like whatever and i stopped doing it and then i thought about it and i was like if if i wasn't here if there wasn't like an experiencing mind like would we like would, would we have morality if that like would we be able to say that anything was of value if there wasn't like something to experience it um and i guess like i don't at the moment i'm not convinced that like the world is conscious that like there is a consciousness beyond like sentient life consciousness but like maybe maybe you disagree but at this point in my life that's where i'm at so i'm to answer your question like uh wait what 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 was the thing what was is the, the world a friendly place is the world a friendly place yeah I, i don't know i guess my answer to that would be like it's friendly or like we you like you need wasn't my question it was Einstein's well einstein's question, question yeah. <laughs> Hey Einstein. Just to credit him correctly. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, I I don't know. What like what do you what do you think? It's funny from a guy who's a research actually I don't know how much was research for the nuclear bomb. But um This is open hour. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Um I mean that's interesting as well was with, with But it's with, super it's, because Marshall McLuhan basically um said the atomic marshall clone oh okay, okay. <laughs> like i uh, basically said the atomic bomb was information i mean that, that's what i was about to say so, like so it's interesting that a scientist of i think has to be I mean, hyper, hyper aware but it has to be hyper aware of this question because what they produce is information or tools um And they don't necessarily prescribe how they get used. Mm. And so like, and it's a never, you know, and you never throw anything into a neutral context. You throw things into a culture and that culture has inclinations and desires and hopes and kind of, um, and often very negative uh, attributes or kind of inclinations. And, yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. Hold on. Culture has negative hopes. Well, as in, so <laughs> if you are a scientist being hired by government, they tend to be paid for. Uh, from the context of like mi the military for instance so, yeah because like, we're like being obsessed with creating structures and not cultures cultures before structures but so, for instance certain cultures like i don't know england in the victorian era um was pushed by this imperialistic kind of point of view so like any technology or any science or anything you develop there would be subsumed and uh, animated by that that way of thinking 
Um, yeah. And so, like, a scientist, specifically maybe in the, the 40s and 50s in America and, and in Europe, would have to be hyper aware of the context they're throwing culture into or throwing their data into, their information mm. into. Um, but I just, I don't think that happens. Like, I, I really don't think there is a culture of scientists or, yeah, or like, I don't think that. But is it neoliberalism or whatever you want to call but it? The, yeah. Can you extract science from culture? Can you extract science from culture? I don't think you can. I'm asking you. Ah, uh, well, like. Because, like, every scientist. Okay, so I guess this is like the whole point of, like, in a sense, trustless networks, which are now being brought about within new technologies because of course like people have let down people from for eons right but like i mean you cannot omit the cultural capita that is imbued inside the scientist as a human being which will always inform their findings or their investigations or their research so actually you cannot extract science from human culture Mm. but but like i guess there might be like maybe that's just the institutional scientist who's like funded to do particular research like maybe maybe other like like the the i don't know like should we like what is our definition of a scientist is it just like a, a person in a lab or is it anyone like kind of experiment because like is what you're doing science in well, lab the, that or? question that einstein cooked up was uh for everyone though no? like uh, okay it's surely whatever actions that anyone's doing and, and throwing into the world and um and yeah. what responsibility do we have towards that and do we think we're throwing into a good place or a bad place mm. Um, I mean, actually, I think it would be a really interesting thought experiment if we acknowledge that every member of society was a scientist. Yeah, I mean, we have to define maybe. So, what is a scientist at this point? It's somebody who's um, really? has theories about the world and is yeah. and is trying to test those theories by through their experiences and through whatever experiments they can uh, think up. Well, yeah, how, I guess... And then do you think that um, the the political heavyweights are somewhat scientists? Would we say that Cambridge Analytica was a scientific practice? I think it's with, the, the problem with the, the word science is that it implies a science, whereas uh, nobody knows anything. And um, I suppose there are people who have theories and who are like... But, but it's like a, you position a controlled environment and gather results i just don't think the environment's that controlled but yeah i I take your point but like surely surely there are like like natural laws like gravity and i'm not sure if i know what gravity is i mean (laughs) (laughs) no no but like Like... ed before you said we don't know anything yeah i don't think that's true i I mean like maybe we can't like Maybe like, okay, is what you mean like everything is just a theory? No, I, I just meant that like in my mind, the the, the term scientist um, means somehow somebody who's working with a controlled environment 
and uh, testing their results whereby whereas actually maybe magicians maybe a better uh, or, or like i don't but, know come on magicians like literally lost the magic word to physicists <laughs> that is true but i'm just saying i'm just saying that cambridge Analytica have theories and i suppose they are testing in, in in the world and they are seeing what works but einstein would be rolling in his grave <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but um the great he did look like a magician uh no um but like physicist technology companies are producing products all the time and alchemy i mean that, that's what technology companies are producing they're, like virtual reality is clearly an alchemy practice yeah maybe it, but it also um <laughs> you're kind of like i'm so fixed on this idea just so, to warn you okay <laughs> just quickly to go back to the scientist point um that i think scientists often have propositions which they test you know they have theories which they test against experiments whereas like for instance if you compare that to social media companies i think there's no real theory it's just a kind of ex- an, an, an ongoing never-ending experiment that's okay. affecting the world what about a, an airplane okay <laughs> like what was one of the the initial principles of alchemic strategies um to out of body transportation which uh-huh. of course then went into telepathy and so forth and then to be able to fly which then of course led into the engineering of airplanes so you it, mean you have these aspirations like, of alchemy a, yeah, that then a, get brought on or followed through by science yeah it's a it's a thought experiment of expansion or human development that i think like science or engineering has decided to um distance itself from the thought experiment that actually imbued its creation mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and the genesis of it and maybe science fiction as well becomes the inheritor of that as well oh, i mean if you read like william gibson he was like pretty much the crypto soothsayer of silicon valley and that also is not necessarily because Gibson was a brilliant writer, but also because the fans that wanted to make his fiction reality, which of course then brings us right away back to hyperstitional environments, which then brings us back to our own practice <laughs> quite nicely. <laughs> yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah, again, creating fictions that then become reality. I think that thinking of in terms of imaginary spaces where role play facilitates that is, is very important and science fiction is also at the peak of that hmm? like can you connect imagination and engineering together imagine yeah <laughs> <laughs> i mean it's interesting you know what, what do engineers and scientists feed off i, I presume they are consuming <laughs> yeah they are consuming the eating artists they're consuming sci-fi writers um, well yeah it has to be like they have to be we're the- actually an extremely valuable part of society <laughs> <laughs> that's our pitch yeah listen to me um yeah okay uh so as as scientists the two of you what <laughs> yeah, what you. what like what kind of world do you want to make like what what is okay here here i, I have a question i have a question i, I have a question i have a question excuse me what is there is there such thing as a utopia no are you walk are you working towards anything in your 
in your art? Every idea of utopia, it, like the constant renegotiation of utopia is what brings us to a present day. That's what's so beautiful about utopias is that like we're living in a world where there's thousands of utopias on the make all the time and that's what actually brings us to And in competition day. with each other yeah. and there's that, you know, that saying that one person's utopia is another person's hell and I think, mm. I mean... Utopias drive. Like, if there was not this concept of wanting utopia, I think progression would be really hard to find. For sure. And, you know, at the moment we're looking at a battle between, um, in America and I suppose in Europe as well, of like a populist right versus a kind of a socialist movement as well. And in Australia. I'm meeting it with um, some centralists thrown in. And I think um, there are worlds competing essentially for domain and for power. And um, it's an incredibly... It's a moment of transition and it's terrifying, um, but it's also exciting for those, I suppose, utopian propositions, however dystopian their realities might be. Mm. But I also think that, like, I just want to go back to your kind of like half question of like, what kind of world would you make? Because I actually think what is so drives us to the way in which we work is that we actually don't want to make our world. We want to explore collectively yeah what's funny is, is if there's one thing that would i'd be interested in bringing into the world it is more of a an experimental language that um of making, of making and, and of exploring and like you know to not to not try to settle anything definitive but to to, to trust and propagate the process mm. it's like this I think that there's, I love the way that I keep speaking for both of us. Yeah. <laughs> like, oh. It's this idea you, you of like, you like, become like this speaking one. about ortholessness <laughs> while speaking for both of us. Like, <laughs> Take my voice. <laughs> like, so anyway, we have <laughs> like, an, a real interest in being ortholess, I feel. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Like being facilitators, but also not authoring the conclusion yeah to not i think it's so much more powerful when you don't have a clear idea of how things will turn up but you sort of um you, you know you set these things up and whatever may be may be also in terms of authorness being an author like I, I really want to abdicate my responsibility always i much i really love being in what i make um and what you make um what you guys make and i think um Ultimately, I wish there was just somebody else doing it for me all the time. But then, but then we return to the question of like, how, how are we supposed to trust that we're going to be moving in like, in an okay direction? You mean politically or? Just like, like, I like, I agree with you. Like my preference is to kind of, like if I go, I, I like can't even I can't even like choose what to order off a menu. I think we have like, to I, I, really um, put our hope in chaos. Okay. Like actually to find sanity in chaos. Because if we want order and direction, I think we're just going to perform this really vicious circle of the last century right and like this exploration of 
both they're kind of this kind of translocality version of accepting heritage and diversity with equality and horizontal structures of both mm. like if you can begin to acknowledge the chaos to which we live in i think actually a lot of pain will be relinquished but i think the factor that we're constantly in this sort of radical state of persuasion is what's actually hindering us yeah and this idea that certain special political groups are promising realities and they're like this is going to be the reality and it often especially on the right has this baked in nostalgia like we're going to go back to the 1950s and it's going to be fantastic mm-hmm. but with you know some new technologies thrown in and i think actually as i think you're saying is that like when you have these concrete ideas um then some suddenly have a lot to lose and uh it becomes a frantic struggle whereas if you're much more fluid and like allow and accept the chaos um you can respond and build things kind of as you go which allows you to be much more flexible and fluid and one of the other things i think that um i think this sort of point of view encourages is an empathetic understanding of the other and mm. i think that I think that is at the heart of socialism, essentially, and I think that's at the heart of progressive left-wing politics. Yeah, right, right. Um, and so, it, but yeah, then it does sound like, like when when we talk about, like through this entire conversation, there's been the claim that like, um, that an idea of being or an idea of one's identity can't or shouldn't be seen as this static, isolatable thing that can be like, ah, oh, that's like, that's what I am. But like, what what you two do in your art is experiment with your concept of being and allow it to be this, or examine it as this mobile shifting thing. But at the same time, in response, or if we take into account what you just said, Ed, um there needs there needs to be some there need to be some protections afforded to the concept of being like freedom freedom to explore freedom yeah i i don't know is that because it sounds like that's what like you know as you're saying like um at the heart of socialism is respect for the other respect for the other being but like in order for that to happen there needs to be some maybe there needs to be an acceptance that there is something before our essence that there is like a freedom that must that must always be there i'm not sure i feel it needs to be protected so when you say freedom yeah do you want to go into that a bit more um well like yeah i guess i i purposely didn't want to define it because like yeah, one, I think it's a very difficult thing to define. And two, um, I guess it's mostly subjective, but like maybe in the context of this conversation, freedom can be interpreted as something along the lines of um, like being able to, being able to, being able, yeah, being able not to be static. Like not being told that this is who you're supposed to be, not being told that like that, yeah, you have to wake up and do this for your entire life. 
being able to play. Damn, I was reading the other day about this idea of negative freedom, which I've forgotten about, unfortunately, like the, the tenets of it. Something like, um, I'm not even going to try. Okay. You guys keep talking about yourselves like you've got negative freedom. <laughs> <laughs> but I think, like, um, isn't freedom this position of actually radical care? Like, to give people freedom to make their own choices, even if those choices make them unsafe. Mm. This is like the most caring position you can give to a person. Is it their autonomy? Yeah, and I think actually um, empowering people and, 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 and giving them uh, the freedom to make those mistakes is actually quite a radical position in today's politics. Like it's not something that's very talked about. Very I much. mean, actually, it's like a real hangover of the left that they think that they should uh, that they know all the mistakes and that they can like kind of liberate us from our own mistakes. Mm. So, like the fact that like that um, a lot of. Uh, let's say there's a, there's both right and left wing rhetoric around um, orthodox religious practices and that they want to liberate these beings give them freedom but actually is that really the, is it really the way in which liberation works is that really the way like can you give freedom I think that's also very interesting. Through a set of limitations, essentially, as well. Well, yeah. I mean, what the fuck is a gift of freedom? Like, how can you gift freedom? It's like in, you're gifting death. <laughs> it doesn't, Which it often actually does doesn't happen. make sense, really. Um, but it's actually interesting, yeah, like the idea of, of, of freedom often has to do with restraint and limitations. Yeah, I mean... I think we started this conversation you brought up this idea of like you can really only experience knowledge from your sense of being mm. and I think that's similar to freedom like hey I give you freedom but unless you experience the transition of taking your own freedom mm. how can my gift of freedom really be anything but I don't know, like um, a free sample or something like that. Mm. But also, yeah, like... Or also... My gift of freedom to you might be your prison. Yeah, yeah. And like that, that's the... That's the problem. The, well, that's a problem. Like if if people already have... If people already have an understanding of the world and you give them your idea of freedom that conflicts with their understanding of the world. Like, but then, then, then we return to that, that, that question, like how, how do you communicate the value of play? Like, how do you get, how do you get someone else to like dance with your own world? Well, it's, what's interesting as well, it, it requires like, okay, well you can have your, role play over there which happens to be your political view or your religious view um, but the most important thing is an understanding that uh, we need to exist with a basket of narratives like the overriding value has to be a diversity of narratives mm. because without yeah, otherwise that otherwise it becomes like a cult yeah and without that you're you, you're 
I mean, without the diversity of narratives within the role play, like basically we're just performing a cult. Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, and that's interesting. Actually, cults are defined by um, a lack of oversight and integration into like larger narratives that might question them. Um, yeah, so it's interesting to compare the cult to the religion. Like the religion is uh, socially integrated. It comes into tension or interaction with bodies outside of itself, whereas the cult fundamentally isolates itself from those bodies and, and performs total control. Yeah, right. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I think that's that's basically another sense of role playing is the cult. Like, I mean, okay, there's a super interesting um, law case against Hubbard from Scientology, yeah, where they basically wanted to put on trial the e meter. Um, What's the e-meter? It was the the machine that they used that they said had healing effects of um, giving your trauma analysis. Mm -hmm. And what happened was they went to court, but um, the Scientologists declared that the Bible is not being put on trial because it's a spiritual object. So the emitter couldn't possibly be tried in a principal court environment because it's of a spiritual yes, object. Yeah, the great get-up clause in the same way. <laughs> Which is a fantastic narrative, no? And the, they have the same relationship with their taxes, I believe, as well. Um, yes. I've never been to a Church of Scientology. I have. I've been to a Church of Scientology. I've been, uh, had my character tested. Did you and I it? was found lacking. Yeah, they uh, they showed me a graph that showed me my um, my character attributes, and it was in the negative. And then they were they said that I could get it into the positive, but I would have to work very hard and give them a lot of money. Um, uh, classic. Yeah, and I was uh, I think the first kind of section of it is about two thousand pounds. Wow. Wow. I mean, yeah. So I, I just went for taste. I wanted to see what the hell they were offering and how they offered it. Um, and they do some really dark stuff. They really like neg you. And they um, they often try and sort of search for trauma in your life. So they were asking like, has anyone died recently? Have you been ill? Anyone else who's been ill? And then they use that and try to like, I don't know, kind of start creating a sense of need uh, or narrative of need. Wow. That, I mean, I mean, like, what is, what's their primary agenda, you know? If, I mean, the most disturbing thing was that all of the people working there, that like kind of miniature young versions of uh, like Tom Cruise mixed with like an estate agent. Like it was a very odd environment. Wow. But I recommend everybody going just for the, the strange experience. Wow. Well, in the show notes, I can put Ed Fornialis, esteemed London artist, endorses. Advocates and endorses. <laughs> um, Fair session free. Yeah. Use, use my promo code. <laughs> yes. There's, um, yeah, there's a good saying in LARP, which I really like, which is uh, reality is just bad LARP design. And, um, ah. and I think that's very true. And I think, uh, yeah, I think... We can start. We should start looking at our day-to-day -day, um, 
existence in terms of the rules that are dictated and we should start thinking about how we can rewrite those rules yeah right i think it's really important to add that our practices are definitely not in any way evaluated to a conclusion like that our practices are still very much in the genesis phase of experimentation yeah and that um yeah we're experimenting and having a lot of fun okay uh is that that we don't really have the answers yet no i want the answers anyone <laughs> <laughs> got the answers um but i mean we've like okay like but like i don't want this to like to drag on but like i i think half of me is like it's fine not having an answer and then the other half is like the other half like looks at me in the mirror and like sees this like broken depressed sod and is like the only thing or like one thing that would be helpful is knowing like knowing what direction is a good direction to be going in but i don't know maybe i think that's a really independent question to the individual okay i don't think I would find it very difficult to advocate an ultimatum of knowing. Sure, in any course, being, I mean, God, I mean, yeah. There's, yeah, I don't know. You're right. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, that, like... I think that if we're, if we're ever going to get to a reasonable answer of understanding the meaning of ourselves in in the multiverse to which we find ourselves it's actually accepting the unknown hmm. and um and i think actually um why we live in this complex environment of wanting to know is purely that we readily accept authority to aid us in that. And I think that from a personal position, wanting to find the answer through another is what's brought us to this extremely detrimental state that a lot of people find themselves in of becoming lost. But if we embrace this feeling of constantly learning and never assume that we will find the answer, but we want to constantly unpack, I think that's like the most comfortable position we can maintain at the moment. Yeah, that's... Uh yeah, perhaps the best we can get at. And anything else is kind of um, maybe bullshit. Anyhow, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. This, this is too big a question. Yeah, well, sorry, sorry. I, like, I, yeah. <laughs> We're on the other. But hey, I mean, that's a good place to, to wrap it up. So thank you, Omsk, and thank you, Ed. Thank you for having us. It was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I, I hope it was. Thanks for listening. It was a nice ramble. Thanks for listening. <laughs> <laughs>
Do you have a jingle? Do you want to make one? <laughs> I, I don't have that skill. <laughs> okay. I mean, I mean, we 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 can try. No, I think we should. Uh... Hey. <laughs> like, but, okay. What would be your like theme tune? I I think it's always good to pirate other people's theme tunes. So um well, tell me. I I love like um this like rave mix children of the night. Could we could go? if we if we put this uh, podcast could you put that song yeah, on uh, after? Song? It's called children of the night. <laughs>